Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1922 film Nosferatu. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Sam, I'm doing well. Not feeling at all horrified. <laughs> I'm really excited to talk about this movie. This is the uh, this is by six years the earliest film that we have uh, watched for this. Um, so I'm curious. I definitely realize as I watched this that I have a history with this film that I didn't, I didn't initially, let's just say memories came back to me as I was watching this. So let's start with what is your history with this film? I, I have absolutely no idea when I first saw this film. It's just one of those films that I don't know, somewhere I picked it up somehow along the way, but I absolutely, I probably high school, but I really don't remember. I'd be is making the, it up. Is this the kind of thing that would have just played on, on tv in the middle of the yeah day. yeah it would have been on tv or you know there's uh i've mentioned several times there was a um kind of an artsy uh cinema in new haven near where i grew up so maybe i saw it there or something like that i just don't remember for me i definitely at some point in the in the 1980s know that i saw an image of count orlock because mm. that that's like a like a it almost feels like a very early memory I mean, I'm sure I'm sure I was not a very, very small child, but sometime, you know, before the age of 10, I think because I think I had seen uh, either a, a short clip or a picture of him uh, somewhere because that there's a very visceral feeling I get when I see him. That is like a bringing up a memory I can't quite I can't quite put together. Um, and then I definitely remember at some point hearing the name Nosferatu, that that was just sort of in the air. And then sometime in the mid nineties, this was, I, I, this, I distinctly remember I was homesick um, and uh, it was on in the middle of the day on like AMC. And I think I watched maybe the first 20 minutes of it or so. So I, I'd never seen the whole thing, but watching this brought me back to that. And then definitely shots of Orlock on the boat. I was like, I have like that trudged up old, old visceral memories, which I think, uh, I think Murnau would appreciate that. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And I can say I certainly had seen the film before 1979, because when Werner Herzog's remake came out, I was already familiar with the with the original. But you're right. You've, you've identified there's two or three kind of really striking images of Orlock that have become almost archetypes. Um, and if, any, if anybody ever mentions the film, usually you get that shot of him lurking on the boat, for example. Uh, that, that seems to be kind of a signature shot. Yeah, sort of the low angle where you see his yeah. long fingernails. Yeah. So maybe let's start with, with contextualizing this movie a little bit. Who is F.W. Murnau? Yeah, so, so Murnau was uh, one of the really important uh, German directors of the uh, silent era beginning. I think his first film was maybe 1919 or so. Um, he's kind of known for three three films, uh, and Nosferatu would be the first of them. Uh, and then he made uh, one of his last German films, it's called The Last Laugh, which is famous, if I remember remembering right, for not having intertitles. Um, and then the film on which his reputation really rests is one of his, uh, he went to Hollywood subsequently after Last Laugh. And then he made Sunrise, which is, I will confess right up front, is one of the great gaps in my film education, and we may need to do that on the podcast at some point. That's a 1927 film. Janet Gaynor won the Best Actress for that film, uh, and that is the what that is really the film that, in a sense, kind of resurrected his his reputation. He was another one of those auteurs, kind of rediscovered by the French in the 1950s. 
Um, and one of the reasons why it was Sunrise rather than Nosferatu is Nosferatu existed in a number of different kind of uh, different versions because um, when he when the film was made, and this is kind of a bit of a tangled history because one way I read I read read the history is um, they did they, they did not have permission from Bram Stoker's widow they did not to to shoot Dracula which is why it was renamed Nosferatu and all the names were changed. So there was an extended um, lawsuit uh, and ultimately it bankrupted the company uh, that shot the film and the, the courts decided that the film would be destroyed. I've also heard that actually there was no copyright issued. Uh, and so that I've, I've heard it both ways, but at any rate, what happened is the German original gets, get all the copies get destroyed in Germany. So then you have various versions that have been distributed around the world. And so there's a number of different running times on the film, depending on which version it is. There's different style intertitles. So it's, a, it's one of those films that doesn't really exist exactly as Murnau shot it. Um, but that in itself has been, has been is part of the legend of the film in a way. Absolutely. And, and I should say, I think Sunrise is... It's in like the the top ten on the sight and sound list. Like that oh, yeah, is that is a movie either. that it's is always in the top ten. Yeah, yeah. So that that that's one that as I was reading about him, I thought, well, I got to watch that at some point. That's yeah. that's definitely added to the list. Um, so I'm actually curious when you watch this this time around. Uh, describe to me the. So I watched two different cuts of this because I was <laughs> I was interested in seeing. I, I watched one that was 81 minutes. And one that was 94, 95 minutes. Um, and there were other differences between them. But I'm curious about the cut that you saw. Yeah, I watched the uh, the longer cut, the 90 some odd minute cut, the one that's uh, the, the Kino Lauber put out. Kino Lauber does a pretty decent job with restoration along with Criterion. So I, I did watch I did watch the longer one. Um, one of the characteristics of that one was it divides the film into five acts. Um, and my understanding is in Murnau's original version, there were 19 acts. Um, and you notice that there are a lot of fade outs, uh, you know, a lot of transitions. And so, but what I saw was it, they tried to create kind of a five act structure that actually made some kind of sense. Uh, I, I have to say. Was your, was the version you watched tinted or was it black and white? No, it was black and white, um, which is another very good point about the history of the film. As far as we know, the film was originally colorized. Um, what a lot of people don't know about the silent era was that there, uh, there were efforts to uh, colorize films, uh, usually by actually having to hand paint them or hand tint them. And one of the reasons why that's actually really important is if you watch the black and white version the way I did, you're kind of thinking, well, why is Count Orlock a vampire wandering around in the middle of the day? So you actually, ironically, with black-white, you don't get the same day-night contrast. But in the colorized version, it's very clear. I think night is tinted blue or something like that. And so you can tell that it's night rather than uh, rather than day. Yeah, so the two versions I watched, the shorter one um, I watched, and it was it was black and white. The restoration was not as good. And what part? this is partially why I watched another version is I started watching this and I was like, this the version I watch actually used the Bram Stoker names, so like oh, wow. it was it was um yeah so like because so it even referred to instead of Orlock it referred to him as Dracula and it referred to Harker and all these people and I've read Dracula and I was like I'm pretty sure this isn't like the standard that this is so I watched that um because I was like well I started I kept watching it and then I went out and and got the the 95 minute one and the version I saw was tinted and I I have to say actually the tinting is very effective. 
uh, for the very reason you point out. And there's there's really three colors that get used. Um, yeah, it's it blue is night. Um, the kind of a gold is day, and it's also like uh, interiors when you feel a little safer. <laughs> Um, so there's like, like safe interiors are, are one color. And then when things get, when it's night or things get very dangerous indoors, it turns to blue. And then they also use red to kind of indicate a transition. It's like, okay, it is day, but it is becoming, um, mm. it is becoming night. So like the, it's sort of the clock is ticking sort of colors. I actually found, I found the, 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 the tint really, uh, an effective, uh, an effective piece here. Um, what is, what is innovative about this movie? Well, okay. I'll ask two questions and you can kind of go the direction you want. And you can also feel free to say, that's an unfair question. How should I expect you to know this? Um, maybe what was the state of movies in 1922? I've been doing a little bit of reading of like, okay, what are things that came out before this? Cause I was kind of curious was, was horror a, a genre that was highly developed at this point. And from what I can see from a very cursory search, it looks like in the early 20s, we start to get like like 1920, we start to get German expressionist horror movies. But before that, as I'm flipping through like notable movies, I'm not seeing a lot of things that either are titled as horror or even when I read a brief description of them. So is that accurate that it's this is sort of a post-World War II or excuse me, World War One is when we start to see that or, or, or does horror go back further in film? No, that, no, that's that's pretty clear. That's pretty accurate, Sam. Especially in terms of the German context, and I'm I'm glad you you identified as post World War One because uh, Germany at this time is in a very kind of precarious position, trying to recover from the war. The Weimar Republic is trying to establish itself. So, so there's one reading of the horror films as, and of course, this is often typical of horror films, right? There's uh, the way in which horror films um, reflect larger societal. Uh, problems, issues, questions. So, for example, it's been said in the United States that depending on which political party is in power, you're either going to get zombie films or vampire films. Um, and so in, in the same way, um, the horror films of the early late, late teens, early 20s in Germany were one way of expressing some of the anxieties over the unstable nature of the Weimar Republic. So probably the most famous ones would be The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, from 1919, which is, I mean, that is sort of the high watermark of expressionism. Um, and, and, you know, we see expression, German expressionism comes into the United States, um, actually, <laughs> mostly through people like Orson Welles uh, and film noir. So you get a lot of Dutch angles, which we saw in The Third Man, for example, a lot of low shots. And in Caligari, you actually have um, interiors that are um, set at all kinds of strange uh, geometrical angles. And so if expressionism, as we've talked a little bit about in the past, is an effort to express an internal state of mind and inflict that upon, enforce that upon the world. So Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, Dirk Gollum, Dirk Gollum from 1920, and then Nosferatu, um, they're all ways of kind of expressing a certain amount of social uh, political anxiety. So one political reading of Nosferatu, for example, would say that um, the count kind of represents the inevitable rise of autocracy or the or the uh, the, the, the dictator that cannot be resisted uh, to whom the German people are both attracted and by whom they're also repulsed. Um, at the same time, one of the ways in which this is is different from the typical expressionist film is all the exterior and on location shooting that Murnau uses. 
Um, and that was very unusual for the time. It was unusual for, for expressionism. Uh, and he did a lot of location shooting. A lot of those locations actually still exist, interestingly enough. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about um, uh, we. I, I've led trips, um, helped lead trips to to Germany where we were where we talked about this kind of interwar period and going to like the Pinakothek Modern in um, in Munich and looking at um, some of the artwork, some of the painting Max Beckman people like that, and it's like, oh, this all feel this sort of feels of a piece in terms of what's happening in film in early Weimar, what's happening in in uh, the visual arts. So, so that I hadn't made that connection, but that is kind of interesting, um, kind of interesting to think about uh, in, in terms of that. Um, when I think about horror in film and, and the, I think we've really only watched one other movie that is definitively, we could put in this category and that is let the right one in. So I actually went mm-hmm. back and listened to that episode. Cause I'm like, I don't want to repeat myself with questions, um, you know, to you about this, since this is sort of our second, uh, our second foray into the, the world of, of vampires. Um, horror seems like such a natural direction for film to go. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of it, maybe it's it, it might be even the genre that one of the genres that's best suited to film. Uh, I, I said that thought and then I, to myself as I was writing notes and then I thought, OK, what do I mean by that? So things that I wrote down to sort of think like, well, why do I think that? Uh, for one thing, when you especially, you know, back then when you're watching a horror film, you're going to a theater, you're sitting in a dark room, you're in a relatively safe place. And that's maybe when you feel most comfortable encountering things that are going to um, uh, unsettle you a little bit or scare you a little bit. Um, I, it in, it definitely, and, and this I think comes out in this film a lot that 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 film engages multiple senses and engages them differently. So you know you don't just get a description in words, but there's a lot about this that is like how Orlock moves, um, mm. how just how unsettling like when he moves his eyes to look over in a direct. I mean, all of this stuff is stuff that I. I guess theoretically as a writer, you could describe, but seeing it has a different kind of power. Um, and, it, and I, and, and fear seems like a pretty raw emotion. And I feel like, like films can kind of tap into that. Cause this is not a, this is not like a, a gory, scary mm-hmm. movie in some ways, but it, but it does have a lot of unsettling things to see. E- even a hundred years later, there are images that are unsettling and I can only imagine things that, might seem passe to us in 2022 in 1922 might've been even more upsetting to see. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, I think one of the adjectives that I haven't seen this attached to the film, but I think about Freud and the uncanny. Um, and there's a sense in which the film gives you that notion, that sense of the uncanny. It's, it's, uh, I, I think, you know, it's unsettling is a really good word for it. And, and one of the things that Murnau often does to unsettle you is just the composition within the frame. He, he does a lot of off-center compositions. It's a lot of, you know, people are often off in a corner. Uh, and, and you get the sense that it's almost as though they're shrinking from the world. It's almost as though the world is a, is a dangerous place. Um, and then even though there's relatively few shots of Orlock compared to what we think of as a vampire film, the kind of focuses on the vampire uh, feasting on or stalking his victims. I think that what he does with the appearance of Orlock is um, when he does show up, there's the maximum shock value. And, and he never shows up in exactly the same way. So you get a low angle shot, you get that wonderful shadowy picture of him going up the stairs. 
you get him looming on the deck of the ship. And then, of course, you get one of the more famous shots, which is the coffin opens up and he just rises like a uh, like a slab up out of the coffin. And then you get this also suggests the suggestion that he has some kind of occult power at distance. Doors open and close on their own. Uh, he obviously is sending out these thoughts to somehow influence people. So I think the whole thing is it's not horror and, you know, it's not jump scares. Uh, it's not even a sense often of grave physical danger. It's more a sense of psychological danger. And it's more a sense of um, that he is a force. He's a, um, a malignant force of nature. And so he kind of suggests the whole idea that our environment uh, can turn against us, that we are surrounded by dangers, whether they're as small as a um, carnivorous plant or a spider or as virulent as the Black Death. I mean, I think, you know, uh, he expresses... Uh, Roger Ebert said it great. He has something about the fact that the, the film uh, taps into the things that we lie awake at night worrying about. And I think that's where the horror from this film comes from. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite versions of what you're talking about is um, towards the end of the film after Orlock has moved in across the street. And Ellen gets up and looks at the window. And before we get the like kind of closer up shots of Orlock at the window, you get a shot of the whole building and Orlock is this little white speck in one of the windows. And it's like, otherwise mm-hmm. that is a, an abandoned building, which is broken down, but there is this white face that you almost don't catch that is staring at you. And the second you realize you see it there, it's kind of terrifying. And, you know, and I think this is, this is heightened by the fact that this is a silent film too, is like, you never hear him say anything. He's just there, you know, and he just, he just is a peer. Yeah. Like I, I really, that, that, that was one of those, one of those shots that I thought, wow, what a, what a great idea of keeping it at such a distance at first. So you have to find him in that building. And it reminds me, this may just be a a weird connection to my brain that the two films have nothing to do with each other, but it reminds me of a shot in a Polanski film called The Tenant, in which the tenant, in which played by Polanski, in which he is in a, um, it's a kind of a horseshoe-shaped apartment complex, and he's standing at his window, he's looking across the complex, and even as I tell you this, I'm getting goosebumps, and in a window across the complex, he sees himself. Hmm. And to uh, to me, that shot of Ellen looking across and seeing and seeing Orlock kind of kind of echoes that. So. Absolutely. I mean, other, other scenes that are unsettling, I mean, they're unsettling, but they're things that are also, if I think of them in a different way, it's, I find them very funny is all of the footage of Orlock walking around the town with a casket under his arm because a casket is big and heavy and it's full of dirt. And for him, it's like, he's carrying like this, this, I mean, it's, it's this, this very light thing that he's sort of casually carrying around and it looks so strange so it's it's either funny or upsetting, and I'm not sure I'm not sure which. Or I mean, for me, one and this is just a, a personal fear of mine is like the first time that they uh, when they at the shipyard when they open up the one casket and it's full of dirt and they dump it out and you see all the rats walking around mm-hmm. that are in there. Like that's that's a a particular fear of mine, and I, like I found all of that more disturbing than 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 I wanted it to. Um, and and yeah, and like I, I it's one of those things that I, I actually kind of like in film sometimes is when I see something that it's like, I, I can't quite explain why this makes me feel, I mean, it makes, makes me feel strange in a kind of way. It's the kind of thing that uh, someone like David Lynch does really well too, where he'll just put an image or a person or something that's like in and of itself, that thing shouldn't be that. Mm-hmm, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not 
if you describe it to somebody, they're like, yeah, whatever. But it's like, but there's something about seeing it or the way you see it that just makes you feel on, makes me feel uncomfortable. And I think, I think Murnau does that really well here. Um, it's also interesting because as for, for a vampire film, there is very, very, very little blood in this movie. I think, I think there's two scenes, I think. And one of them is really well done when Hutter cuts his thumb. Because mm-hmm. you see it coming and you're like, oh, oh, this is when it's, you know, and, and, and there's, there's even something um, unsettling about watching somebody slowly cut the, like you, you see the knife coming as he's cutting the bread. So there's that. And then I think the ship captain, when you see his dead body, like that's kind of a, uh, there's like blood there, but I, I don't remember any other parts where you, it's talked about a lot, but where you see it. No, no, you're right. Those are the only times. Yeah. Um, and I also love the fact that, and you sort of talked about this, that uh, that Orlock is not just a vampire who you know hunts his prey, but he brings with him, um, he brings with him plague and disease. Um, so you get those images of people, rows of people walking down the street at night carrying coffins, or when they're going through marking the houses. Um, and I will say this: this actually struck me as as such an interesting um, pandemic movie. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. And it's like, well, there's, I mean, there's, there's scenes about when they discover what it is and this, everybody go to your house. And there's, you know, there's the, the announcement of the quarantine. And there is even this, I, I remember in the early days of COVID, like being afraid of somebody who was like, Oh no, this person tested positive, And you just, you sort of want to flee from that. Or you want to blame if somebody, I mean, when I had friends who got COVID, it's like the first thing you do is you start to track it back and say, where did I get it from? Who did I get it from? Which is about contact tracing, but there's also a inherent kind of blame in that. Like you're the one who brought this here, mm-hmm. you know, and it's interesting because this is also, you know, a movie that, that comes out uh, amidst probably towards the end of another pandemic though. Like this, sure. the Spanish yeah. influenza is, you know, this is right on the heels of that. So, and I had, yeah, I didn't I, think yeah. about that till this morning. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking, of course, as we said earlier, the context of World War One, but certainly, yes, the the uh, the 1918 influenza didn't really die down till the fall of 1920. So, you know, when they started shooting the film, it was only a year in the past, and I think that's definitely. I mean, the the world had seen a lot of mass death, both both violent and um, and caused by by disease, and so the Black Death just kind of becomes. Um, Kind of a metaphor for all those kinds of uh, all those kinds of mass mass destructions. Um, so one of the things that 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 jumps out if you're somebody who who has seen other Dracula films or who's who has read the book is Orlock's appearance because mm-hmm. uh, Murnau does not make him a a um, I will say a traditionally seductive figure. He clearly <laughs> has a power over people, but he's not a tra- I mean, he's he is hideous looking i mean like like they go out of their way to you know not 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 only does he have like these bat ears but they're not even even they're like there's mm-hmm. even there askew his teeth everything about him is um is made to kind of repulse you when uh, whenever you see him um and that's a big departure from uh from the the stoker book um why do why do you think that's the the direction that he chose for this because that because that that's something which uh, I mean, other than I assume because I've seen clips of the um, 
the uh, the Herzog film. I mean, which where they they keep that sort of image of Orlock because it really is a telling of this story. But that's not a very common vampire image. No, um, yeah, it's almost he's. Uh, well, I mean, I think one one of the ways in which the visual presentation of Orlock maybe does connect with some elements of the traditional vampire representation is he is kind of bat-like. And so there, there is kind of that, that suggestion. Um, no, I, 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 he's obviously feral. Um, as you, and he is obviously more animal-like than he is human-like. And um, I, I can't really answer for why Murnau wanted to do it that way, except I think that it simply adds to that unsettling sense of this odd being because it's curious that he's talked about his count orlock and yet at the same time he looks like he looks like no human being uh you've ever you've ever seen so i think in a sense you could argue that that captures a little bit the mystery of the undead right because the undead are they're both dead and alive at the same time and there's a sense in which Orlock is both human and not human at the same time. And I think maybe that's what the appearance is intended to, to suggest. And also to suggest that if you're going to be undead, if you're going to be a, if you're going to be both human and non-human, maybe you should look like something that's a cross between a human and an animal or a cross, you could even say, between a live being and a corpse, because he's certainly kind of corpse-like in, in his appearance. And I have no idea if um, Murnau had in mind that myth that the fingernails continue to grow after death. Uh, and if that's one of the reasons why Orlock has, I mean, first of all, obviously they're claw-like appendages, mm -hmm. but it also seems to me to suggest somewhat that notion that, you know, you know, he's been dead a long time and that's why the fingernails are as long as they are. Well, so they also seem to grow that, throughout the film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think all of that just makes him a much more, um, well, on the one hand, it makes him a less ambivalent figure, right? Because the traditional Count Dracula, you know, with the Bela Lugosi accent and all that has a kind of charm about him. Uh, and Orlock has no charm about him at all, obviously. But at the same time, I think it makes him um, actually kind of more terrifying because there's, there's always the risk with the humanized vampire. There's always the risk of sympathy for the vampire. Um, and there's no possibility you know vampire the vampire himself or herself being a victim as in the case of, of let the right one in right we have sympathy for the vamp for the vampire girl in that case because she's a victim of vampirism but orlock seems to be the originating force of vamp of vampirism and therefore there's no there's no sympathy for him so the sympathy gets um passed on to the population as a whole and then of course uh, ellen in, in in particular so I just think it's a whole different way of thinking about the relationship between the human and the non-human that other versions of the vampire story play out. We've been much more into sympathy for vampires in the recent in recent history, and that's not where um, we're not, we're now is coming from. Well, it's interesting to think about him as this sort of cross between the human and the inhuman, because we also when we see the uh, the professor you know, showing the the Venus flytrap. I mean, he's he's sort of showing that as like this is this cross between plant and animal right like it is it is it is another one of these things where it's like how do we make sense out of this thing because it seems to be one thing or the polyp with tentacles like it seems to be one thing but it also seems to be another and maybe orlock exists in that I i'm glad you brought up um uh whether we have sympathy for for orlock because that was a question that i wondered about and i wonder because you 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 talked about one read of this film but there is another 
obvious potential read of this film, which is that mm. this is this is about fear of the outsider, fear of the immigrant. Um, mm. I mean, and th- and there is a, a in the in the way that both Orlock and Knock are um, the way they appear, you know, line up with uh, Jewish caricatures. <laughs> that you see, you know, and, and if you're thinking about placing this in Germany between world war one and world war two, there is another, like, there's another read to this, which um, makes me like, like that's the, I guess that's the read that I saw when I, when I, when I saw it. So I was actually, actually liked you. I liked your read. Cause I wanted to find something else in this. And, and, you know, as I read about this film, there are plenty of folks who make that argument, but there are plenty of folks who push back on that argument in part thinking about who Murnau is that that doesn't really seem to make sense in terms of, of uh, an argument that Murnau would be making. But the film does seem to, to, to uh, sort of speak to fear of the outsider, fear of the immigrant, mm-hmm. and, maybe, and maybe a kind of, uh, it, could, it at least can play into a, a latent uh, uh, or even obvious anti-Semitism. Yeah, and I'll, uh, th- that's possible, Sam, and I'll just, I'll just keep pushing back, right? And, uh, and saying, yeah, but I think fear of death is more fundamental. And I mm-hmm. think that that's, uh, and I think because Orlock, I realize you're right, you can push Orlock in a certain direction. It's a Jewish caricature, a Jewish stereotype. Um, but I think because he is so uh, relentlessly affiliated with uh, with death and with the Black Plague, I think, I, think, I, I think that we can at least maybe privilege one interpretation over the other. Although I, I don't think we can, I, I think you're right, you can read it that way too, it's possible. Yeah, no, and 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 like I said, it's not the read I want to have, but it's right, but it's right. one that I, I just felt like okay, so we, we can't do this episode and not say okay, that's oh, an interpretation, um, yeah. out there, you know. Um, I also, I mean, one of, one of the things that um I found interesting about Murnau, well, two, I found two things interesting about Murnau. One is just um, I was reading about him, and uh, the <laughs> there are different descriptions of what Murnau looked like, and he ranges <laughs> anywhere from six foot four to seven feet tall. So, um, which is, I love the fact that somebody living a hundred years ago, we could have that just that different of a range of like how, how tall this man is as a tall person myself. I always find, uh, find out those things very interesting to think about, you know? So, so, but that, that is, I mean, six foot four is not, not crazy tall, but if he's much taller than that, like, he he understands what it feels like to be somebody who sticks out and stands out, and maybe not always. I will say there's lots of advantages to being tall, but there's moments when you kind of wish you didn't stand out. Um, but the other thing about Murnau is there's rumors about his sexual orientation too. So mm-hmm. you know, like that he himself, you know, quite possibly is part of a marginalized group. So that sort of pushes back against maybe some of the like fear of the other types of things as well. So I I, I want to say that because I'm not pushing for the um, uh, for 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 the argument that I put out there, I just kind of wanted to bring that up. Well, that, that's that's also an interesting point, Sam, because um, even though Orlock is not a is clearly not a sexualized figure, there is an element of sexuality in, inevitably in the film with in the fi- in the final scene when he finally does suck her, her blood. And you know, one interpretation I read said that actually they thought Murnau brought in more of a more of a uh, more of a sexual interpretation than in the Stoker or in the, the Stoker novel. So it is interesting. I think that that is. I mean, that's always a subtext in any in any vampire film, right? You never. I don't think you can ever a- avoid that. But it's interesting that um, he doesn't seize on uh, on Hooter's blood uh, when he has the opportunity, but he waits for for Ellen at the end. 
Well, that's interesting because he at first he's he's about to right. So like when he yeah. when he cuts his finger, he's going to, and then and then and Hooter you know um, pushes himself away, and then there is this moment when he's about when he goes into Hooter's room, and it's like that's the moment where it's. I think the Ellen Carey's character is very interesting because she's obviously plays this heroic role in, in bringing this to an end. But even at that moment when he's about to feed on her husband, that's when she calls out and it's like, it's like Orlock hears her and he's already seen Mm -hmm. her picture. And it's like, that's my choice. You know, that's the, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, So, but but it's fascinating because he's, perfectly happy to feast on the people on the boat, you know, on his way there, but somehow he only gets one person in that family or something. So he, you know, so, so, so her, she saves her husband in that moment, um, you know, maybe unknowingly by drawing him to her. And, and, that, and actually I'm glad that's a really important scene, Sam, because you had asked earlier about some of the ways in which maybe the film was innovative. Um, and one of the things that happens in that scene is you get um, what we now see as kind of a routine technique, which is uh, a montage of simultaneous events. So you get uh, Orlock advancing on Hooter at the same time, as you said, that you have to see Ellen crying out. And the way that, and this, Murnau does this in a couple of other places as well, including, I think it's when Hooter is coming back home, and then you get shots of Orlock traveling. Um, That kind of montage intercut editing, um, and, you know, montage editing is not, new Eisenstein's developing it as well at about the same time. But what, um, what Murnau is doing is he's using it to convey that these are simultaneous events at the same time. And it's, and it's interesting if you think about it as film grammar, right? How do, why is it, or how is it that we read that? No, you know, you could imagine if, if you didn't understand the convention that he was introducing, you would say, well, this is weird. Why are we jumping from Transylvania back to Germany? And, Somehow we are able to figure out that the intercutting is not sequential, but it's simultaneous. And so he was actually kind of pioneering that, that technique and training, yeah, I, I, audiences, training audiences. And I think the reason I'll try to answer my own question as best I can. I think the reason is because the cuts are okay. Let me think, put it this way. We read the cuts as spatial rather than temporal because we know that they're in two different locations. When he shows us two different locations, one after the other, for some reason, I think our mind, we fixate on the fact that it's the same location, uh, or that it's different location, but therefore it must be the same time. Because I think it would be too confusing to think, oh, it's two different locations in two different times. Although I can think of films that do that as well. But anyway, so I think that's maybe why we, we figure out that this is actually a simultaneous events. Well, and he does some things to help us out with that because we do have the day and night. So we know this is night in both locations because we know Orlock's uh, moving around. So it's night. Even if we don't have the tints, we see Ellen get out of bed. So we know Mm -hmm. it's night there. And then we, this, this crescendo is at a point where we see Orlock seemingly react to Ellen. (laughs) So, yeah. so, so that, that's the thing where we where where if we're uncertain about what we're seeing, that's the point where it becomes clear to us, you know, it is, it is the moment when those two spaces cross over. Um, so, so yeah, I think I, I, I really, really love that. I also love the, the race to the city montage where, where you're, you're cutting between those and he does, I mean, he does what he's intending to do, which is you feel the tension of like, who's going to get there quicker. And even the inner titles, um, you know, it talks about, uh, 
like Orlock's breath push, you know, propelling the boat forward. <laughs> and, his, and, and you just get this sense of like Hooters on a horse. And it's like, how are you going to cut across when he's on this <laughs> ship, which seems to be moving so fast. And, and, you know, and then he ends up getting there before Orlock anyhow, but like, but that comes as a surprise. You're like, how did he manage that? Um, so I think I, that, mm-hmm. that whole sequence I think is, is really effective for creating, using, using that cutting to create that tension. Now that's something we see and now I've seen a million times, but I think it's, it's, it's really effective right there too. Yeah. And that's something we have to keep reminding ourselves about when we watch the old, these older films, right? I and mean, we were, this is a hundred years old and uh, we're only about really only about 10 years into, into, you know, full length films. And so we're actually watching a lot of what is now conventions being, being invented in front of our eyes. One of the things I really liked about this movie, and this is something that lines up with the, uh, the, the Stoker book um, is the idea that when we read the titles that this movie doesn't have a lot of titles, but when we read the titles, they're coming from various sources. So Mm -hmm. if you've read, if you've read Dracula, you know, like, one chapter is a newspaper article and then you're reading a letter and then you're like, it's and it's pieced together as a historian. I love it. It's pieced together through documents to tell mm-hmm. this story. And this movie, if you're paying attention, you like you have um, the friend of the Hooters is the like main storyteller, the guy mm-hmm. that, you know, who they, they stay at his house. But then you also have the book about vampires, phantoms and demons that, that people are reading. You also have, things people are saying you also have the ship log you read so you do get a sense of like uh it was one of the things that excited me when i read dracula was was the way that that book was formatted was seemed very um inventive and exciting and i feel like i I like the fact that this movie retains that aspect of it yeah that's that's one more way in which murnau kind of lays claim to being an auteur because he uses literal, literally literary conventions to tell to tell the story. It also reminded me a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, the plague. Um, in, in that you know, in in that novel, you have kind of this anonymous narrator, and so he really he gravitates towards uh, these multiple anonymous sources. Um, <clears throat> I just have a few other little pieces. Uh, we should probably talk about the end of this movie. The, I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about Ellen, but um, she, she I mean, she plays the, the cent, the central role in terms of um, bringing this horror to a, to a completion and does it through, uh, through sacrifice. Right. So she, she reads in the book that she's been told not to read, but she has, she's just like, she's drawn to Orlock. She's drawn to the book. She reads that the only way to defeat Nosferatu is for a, um, uh, I forget the wording that they use, but like an innocent maiden to um, mm-hmm. distract him long enough for the sun to rise, the cock to crow, um, and it's through the sacrifice of her blood, and that's that's the exact thing that we see then play out, and we get this 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 great scene again of great sort of like quick reaction moment of acting when when uh, Orlock realizes. Mm. that morning is coming and and it's a great shot and it's really great in the tinted version of the bedroom goes to red and you see the light on the building across the uh the way so you see the sunrise on the building across the way and you realize along with orlock that he has stayed too long well what's what's really interesting is that um it kind of inverts or reverses some of the ways in which the vampire myth has somehow been seen as a kind of 
corruption or parody of uh, of the Christian story. You know, because in in uh, in Stoker's Dracula, you have Dracula kind of feeding uh, his minions from his own breast, or you know, he will he will use his fingernail to open up a vein, and then they will all come and drink from it, and that's and that's seen as obviously parodic of Christ's sacrifice. So what's interesting here is that gets reversed. It's it's uh, it's Ellen or Mina in the novel who makes the sacrifice, uh, and it's the, the it's the cock crowing that does away with uh, with a vampire. So it's kind of interesting to me that uh, Murnau is kind of drawing on those elements of the original, in a sense, kind of reversing them. Um, the other thing I would say about that climactic scene is how anticlimactic it is. Um, every Every vampire movie has to decide how it's going to kill the vampire, right? Um, one, of my, one of my absolute favorite vampire deaths is in one of the Peter Cushing films in the, in the Hammer film series. Those are, those are really fun and not particularly good. Uh, but I, I forget which, which film it is, but it's a film where uh, Dracula uh, has been forced out. He's out in this courtyard of a, of a farm, and there's a windmill whose uh, veins have been set on fire. So they're cruciform. Uh, so they're cruciform and they're on fire and he gets caught in the middle of the shadow of this fire. And that's what, that's what kills him. Uh, here it's, he's a wisp mm-hmm. and he just kind of evaporates. And I thought that was an interesting choice because I thought, well, that's that, you know, he didn't burst into flame and, and I don't, I don't think it was technical limitations. I, I think it was, I think it was a deliberate choice by 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 Murnau um, to to make him ultimately as inconsequential as possible, or also to reveal that he never—that's all he really was. He was—he wasn't really flesh and blood anymore, and so he just kind of uh, is absorbed into back into nature. Hmm. Well, I also think it's interesting to think about the you know the 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 ending of the story that his his downfall is. Um... You know, and maybe this goes to your your read of like the um, uh, you know, the the autocrat like seizing power and things like this. But it's it's and ultimately he's brought down by excess to a degree that he like loses track of what he's doing, loses track of time because he's feasting, and then and and this this leads him to this moment of like sort of forgetting forgetting who he is, and that that's the thing that um. Uh, that that leads to his downfall. Now, one of the other interesting things that I was, as I was reading about this, is that this movie um, strips away Christian imagery at all from the story. Um, really, mm-hmm. that that that, um, and this is this is part of the uh, the the studio that made this that made just this one film that then went out of business. Is um, they were uh, it was called uh, Prana Films, mm-hmm. um, and they were very interested in making supernatural and occult films. Um, so there was this this sense of like you know wanting to tell it, it wanting to tell this story without having to um wrap it up in in sort of christian imagery and christian metaphor so, mm-hmm. I don't, so you don't see any of that really in this uh in this film at all this is a yeah. a secular vampire story maybe yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely um anything else you want to talk about with this film yeah, I want to say just a couple more things about how Murnau achieves his uh, his effects. Um, and one of the one of the ways he does it is you notice there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of shots at a distance. Um, I mean, there's a fair amount of close-ups. But there's a lot of shots at a, at a distance, and 
one one critic I was reading talks about the fact that distant objects can seem kind of ghostly. They're kind of patches without light, and that there's so there's a ghostliness in the way that we see the world in Nosferatu that kind of adds to a sense of horror, perhaps. And then and then secondly, um, there's this idea that um, as, as an expressionist film, as I said earlier, it, it's intended to be very subjective. Uh, that is that we're seeing the world not necessarily exactly as the world is, but as it appears to the person who is who is looking at it. And so one one other critic I was reading says something like nothing in the images quite account for the disturbing intensity. Um, it's as, it's almost as though uh, you can't quite figure out why you have that sense of being disturbed. So I said earlier, part of it maybe with the composition of the frame, part of it maybe just the appearance of the characters. I mean, knock is so. Um, we need to talk about the incredible bushiness of Knox's eyebrows and mm -hmm. just Knox's facial expressions. Um, so I think there's a, there's a whole bunch of different ways in which we are kind of um, distanced from the world that makes it seem as though at the one, the one hand, he has a very almost documentary method. But on the other sense, it feels as though you're not looking quite at the world we, we live in. And that's maybe most famously when Hooter goes over the bridge into Orlock's realm and uh, he uses kind of reverse photography. So the trees, the trees are white and the coach is black. And you get the sense that almost is like he's going across the river Styx. Um, and so there's no effort to show us reality exactly as it is. It's reality as it feels. Yeah, no, I, th th that negative shot jumped out at me because it, it, I mean, again, that's another one of those unsettling moments where the, the movie, and I think they only do it once or twice in the movie that the, he, he does that, but it, it, it jumps out at you. The other thing in terms of, of sort of a, a strange occurrence in the movie that when the first time I saw it, I just, is, is the fact that there's a hyena in this movie mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. and it's, and it's, it's one of those things it's, I mean, you know, it's sort of like the, uh, the polar bear on the, um, the pilot of the show lost where you're like, why is this thing here? I yes. don't know where we are. Like, like, and, and, and that that's unsettling in a different kind of way. Like this is, this is a creature that I'm aware of, but it shouldn't be where we are. And, and why is it running around? And, you know, this is when he's reading the, the book about vampires and werewolves and things like this. And you're like, okay. So it kind of opens the door up to maybe anything can happen because the world is not what you expect it to be. Yeah, I, I didn't know if we were supposed to interpret that as a werewolf. I just, I just wasn't sure. But you're right; it certainly wasn't an, an, animal, an animal I expected to see in the Carpathian Mountains. Yes. Um, other things from this film, I, uh, I loved all of the schooner sequence. This movie had to be expensive to make uh, because they're shooting a boat out in the water from another boat. Those shots are gorgeous. The sh shot of the empty schooner coming into port is is really real a really really just pretty pretty shot and i will say there was a big difference uh between the two versions that i watched in terms of just how clean the film was the the, the first one i saw was was pretty rough um but then the second one that was was restored really well and shot and especially i feel like the boat shots just looked um they looked like they were shot today they were just really really pretty pretty shots um so i thought i thought that sequence i mean this made made the movie more uh complicated to look at had to make the movie harder to make but i find that really effective plus you get the sequence of guys trapped with him you know that's the thing with being on a boat in the in the in the water you know there's um even when they read the captain's log and you know he says you know that there is a uh, uh an uh, unexpected uh 
I can't remember the word they use. It's not not guest, but pass an un, uh, unexpected passenger below decks. But I don't believe that he there really is. And there's just this sense of like, as that as that um, the story plays out, you you just you know you you're seeing these eight people get picked off, and then you imagine being the people who are reading the log and just how terrifying that log must read to be like you know another day passes. And another person has died a mysterious death and we're all going to die here. Like it's, I, I really like, <laughs> and it's, it's not a long sequence, but I really like that part. Anything else with this film? Well, a couple more things that are kind of related to this film. First of all, um, I don't know how authoritative this is. There's a website called Collider that ranks the 25 best vampire films ever. And uh, it puts, it puts this film at number one and let the right one in at number two. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, there was a good, good article a few months ago in the New York Times about Nosferatu because its 100th anniversary was approaching. And one of the really, um, one of the really excellent horror filmmakers of the day, uh, Robert Eggers, who directed The Witch and then The Lighthouse, and he has a new film coming out called The Norseman. Um, he has been trying, he's been working on uh, his own version of Nosferatu. Uh, for a number of years, and yeah, and he he said in the article he's come close to getting it done, but hasn't quite yet. I would be really interested to see what he did he does with this because I think it could be a really, uh, really interesting film. Now, are you a fan of the uh, the 1979 Herzog remake of this? Well, we'll talk about that next week. Okay, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, before <laughs> I, I, you can even ask Sam, that is next week's film. We will watch the 1979 Herzog remake. I am so excited. He's the <laughs> If, if, if there's any filmmaker that I have fallen in love with by doing this project, it is him. I watched this and just thought, I, I want to see Klaus Kinski play yep, yep. Nosferatu. I want to see Herzog tell this story. So that's great. Have you seen, then I'll ask a different question. Have you seen Shadow of the Vampire, which is the... Yes, and uh, I, I would love to watch that together too. Uh, last I checked, it wasn't available in our usual venues. But yes, I have seen Shadow of the Vampire and I recommend it. Fantastic. All right. Well, I was going to ask, what do you recommend for next week? So do you want to officially tell us what we're doing? We're officially recommending 1979 Werner Herzog's Nosferatu remake with Klaus Kinski and Isabella Johnny, uh, who was a very hot actress at the time. So uh, uh, that was, it's a great, great film. Well, fantastic. I could not, I almost watched that this weekend, but I thought ah, maybe there's a chance that that's going to be your pick. And also I'll, I'll, I'll wait for that for Easter weekend. So uh, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this. This is a, uh, this is a movie I was aware of, but hadn't seen in its entirety. And uh, I really, it, it's, if you haven't seen this, it's very easy to watch. There's there, even if you go on YouTube, there's lots of different cuts of this that you can watch for free. Um, and, uh, I, I highly recommend, uh, watching this film. Thank you for recommending this. Thank you for the conversation. And we will be back next week to talk about 1979's Nosferatu, the vampire in the video store.